Okay, so this is Sangutra Nikaya in the Book of Fives, number 48, and it's called Situations. In this case, um, I think this is Bhante Sajato's translation, if I recall. What letters? Um, should show in the... I, I want to show you how to Bikubodi. find these. Oh, it's Bhikkhu Bodhi. Okay, yeah. good. So um, I want to show you how to find these at some point, but maybe not right at the moment. Mm -hmm. I think we'll maybe do that at some point when we have a little extra time. You know, I think a good, a good time for that is uh, in the afternoon, maybe before we do the chanting. Okay. Mm -hmm. okay. Today. All right. Mm -hmm. I'm sure some of you are very uh, well acquainted with Sutta Central. But for others, if this is all new to you, it can be a little daunting. There mm -hmm. is so much information there. And the suttas themselves, of course, we have these huge volumes. Um, and there are five major, major books, Nikayas. And sometimes that can seem a little daunting. But it's actually such an amazing gift. Um, if you think about... You know, being able to have so much of the record of what the Buddha taught in 45 years. Um, and then, you know, by comparison, say, Jesus taught for three years and we really have so little preserved of what he, what he said. And we're just so fortunate to have all of this from the Buddha and, um, and also the Vinaya, the monastic code, which provides a, a container for the monastics, but it also provides certain kinds of examples for living lay life uh, as well. So we're just really lucky. Anyway, we're so going to look at... I just want to say something. So Jesus told only for three years? Three years before he was crucified. Well, it's not long. It's not very long by no. comparison. Yeah. Um, sadly. Yeah, yeah. Very sadly, you know. Yeah, so um, we have four relatively short suttas this morning, or this, is it afternoon where you are? No. <laughs> no, it's not yet. <laughs> Maybe. If you're, if you're further down the, the uh, through, further along in the world, then maybe it's later. Anyway, so this is called Situations, and um, you may have seen this before, but in any case, see it, how much you can take it in. Uh, the the um, sort of impact of this teaching. And the Buddha said, there are these five situations that are unattainable by, really by anyone, by an ascetic or a Brahmin, by a Deva, Mara, or Brahma, or anyone in the world. That really includes everybody. That includes not just this human realm, but it includes the Deva realms. It includes all of those beings we think are really powerful. God, um, Mara isn't really like uh, Satan. Uh, Mara is less evil than that, but still Mara is a powerful Deva who wants to keep everybody in samsara. Any other heavenly being any um, highly attained monk or nun or um, spiritual leader or teacher, there's absolutely no one 
who can have the, any of these things. And the first one is, may what is subject to old age not grow old. This is a situation that is unattainable by anyone. And this is something that, you know, how many, how many expeditions to find the fountain of youth have there been in this, in this human history? How, how, even now we've got people in the tech world trying to figure out how to be frozen and then thawed out later and, you know, live, continue to live their life at once it's discovered how to not age. You know, this is something that, you know, many spiritual traditions have the basic tenet that their spiritual leader is does not age. They're forever young. Um, I practiced in a tradition before that had the, the, the founding elder still living forever, in his youth in the Himalayas. You know, I mean, this is this idea that there is some some paradise somewhere, some way of living that causes us to not age. And the Buddha said, this is just absolutely not the case. And I really feel so appreciative of the Buddha when we see the record of how he lived and how he talked about feeling sick and how he had pain and how he died and that he himself was showing that even a fully enlightened Buddha, the Tathagata, goes through these same things that we go through. So the second one that we no one can obtain is that may what is subject to illness not fall ill. Everybody gets sick. And this is something important to remember. Sometimes I had a friend who, um, who got Parkinson's disease, and when she was diagnosed with it, she you know, was distraught, of course. Of course, we could say, um, with the practice, with the Buddhist teachings, maybe we wouldn't be distraught. That's the point, you know, like if we really reflect on the fact that we could have a diagnosis of any kind at any time, regardless of our age, regardless of what we've done to take care of ourselves, you know, this is possible. And she was talking about how this is degenerative. It's not going to get better. It's only going to get worse. And my response was, we all have a degenerative disease. It comes with birth. And, and one of the things she shared with me at one point was how, you know, there's many um, efforts that healers make or people writing about overcoming illness. They're trying to encourage people to have a positive attitude and various kinds of things. And she said for her, what it meant was it felt like it was her fault that she was sick. And so that is an unintended consequence, of course, by someone who's trying to help people do the best they can. But if, if that's what comes about, we have to take care of our own mind. We have to take responsibility to not go down those tracks that are unattainable and blame ourselves for something that, can, that happens to everyone 
or can. Some people die before they have a chance to, you know, incur any kind of major illness. Still, this is the human condition. That illness is is part of what's natural to the experience of living beings. Thirdly, may what is subject to death not die. Again, you know, living forever kind of idea. Um, maybe if you have the, you know, enough psychic power. You know, there's this story about at the end of the Buddha's life, once he decides he's, he's going to give up the life force, he had, that, he had that control. He could say, I'm going to die. He said, I'm going to die in three months. And he used that three months to still teach. He still walked, even though he, he had gotten really, really sick. Um, and he almost, you know, it seemed like he might pass away. And he said to himself, I have to basically get it together because I want to, you know, leave things in a good way with my disciples. I, I want to finish, kind of like have some completion in a sense. And so he, you know, rallied. And then he said at one point, okay, I'm going to give it up in three months. In three months, I'm going to die. And then he used that time walking long distances and teaching all over the place. And he kept teaching the, the same basic things uh, that we are learning about today. And in in the in our uh, efforts to dig into the suttas. Anyway, there's this part where um, he hints that, given the psychic powers that he's developed, he could decide to live longer. But he also reported that his body was so had deteriorated so much. He said, "I have pain." all the time unless I go into certain like states of concentration, states of samadhi. My body is like an old cart that's being held together by straps. And and then, you know, like there's this hint that he could live longer if he was, you know, if he basically was invited to live longer, he would do it. And that Ananda, even though he heard the Buddha saying this, he didn't realize what it meant. And then after the Buddha says, I've given up the life force, I'm going to die in three months, Ananda's like, no, don't go yet. We still need you. It's so important. Your presence is, means everything to us, you know, and uh, that kind of thing. And the Buddha says, I can't go back on this now that I've said this. And Ananda kind of gets blamed in the in the um, in the history of our uh, tradition, and it's like I'm thinking, where's the compassion? I mean, he's really got the point where it's so difficult. Um, you know, death is normal. Um, there is a time. There's a a wonderful. Um, quote that I like that some of you have heard me use before. There's a monk from the 1920s, I think, in Thailand, who was the chief of the 
whole forest tradition appointed by the Thai um, monastic hierarchy. And he lived in a monastery where they had a lot of funerals. And so he would, you know, give talks at funerals often. And one of the quotes that he, one of the things he said was, consider death to be your friend. He said, you're going to need that when the time is right. And when is the time right? It's whenever it comes. And it's just, it's just an important thing to reflect upon. You know, instead of being afraid, instead of thinking this is the worst thing that could happen, and it's actually a miracle how the stream of consciousness leaves this body behind and goes on to something else that's suitable according to our actions. It's incredible. So it's not something we can't obtain this idea that we live on forever. The fourth one, um, use it, we're using Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation because I like the words he's chosen here. May what is subject to destruction not be destroyed. This is a situation that's unattainable by anyone in the world. And this is valuable. It's like, what's subject to destruction? And just look around. Everything we have is subject to destruction. If a fire comes and burns the house down, this is also something that no one can avoid. You know, whenever that happens, this is something that's unattainable. That's something that can be destroyed gets destroyed. If we really can take that in, even the whole world, you know, this is this is a a natural part of this world of sangsara and any world. May what is the fifth one, may what is subject to loss not be lost. I don't know how you are, but when I lose something, that can be one of the most frustrating um, things that kind of gets to me. You know, like where did I put it? Or who took it? If you live in community, it's really easy to think someone else moved this thing. And then, of course, I find out that I did. Um, but it's, it's just like to really take in that anything that can be lost might be lost. And then when it does get lost, can we just think in that way? So this, so this is the point the Buddha is making here, he says. For the uninstructed worldling, for the ordinary, untaught person, the one who hasn't become acquainted with the Dhamma, when what is subject to grow old ages, let's see, I guess the way it says, what is subject to old age grows old. When this happens, they don't reflect, I'm not the only one for whom what is subject to old age grows old, for all beings that come and go, that pass away and undergo rebirth, what is subject to old age grows old. If I were to sorrow, languish, lament, weep, beating my breast, and become confused when what is subject to old age grows old, I would lose my appetite and my features would become ugly. I would not be able to do my work. My enemies would be elated and my friends would become saddened. 
Thus, when what is subject to old age grows old, they sorrow, languish, lament, weep, beating their breasts, and become confused. Or they go get plastic surgery, right? Something. <laughs> this, is what, this is what an uninstructed worldling pierced by a poisonous dart of sorrow who only torments themselves. This is what this is what we do when we're at that. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying all plastic surgery is bad. It's just an example of sometimes what we do in desperation to, to stay young. And of course, this is true for all five of these things. That if we haven't thought about this before, the natural, you might say, natural, worldly way is to really become distraught. When we've become very ill, when someone dies, when something gets destroyed, or when something gets lost. And so, what the Buddha is saying here is the person who hasn't reflected on this or come into contact with the Dhamma, they don't think in this way. Um, I'm not the only one for whom this is true. It's for, for all beings who come and go, pass away and undergo rebirth. What is subject to loss is lost. And then this idea, if I were to you know, go down this track, um, my enemies would be happy and my friends would, would be, um, I think Sad. you want to go down more. No, the other way. Yeah, this we're is in it. this paragraph here. Oh, it's a, right. They're so repetitive, it's hard to tell sometimes oh, sorry, sorry. where you are. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I would not be able to do my work. There's a lovely sutta with uh, King Pasenadi when his... Uh, no, it, no, it wasn't him. It was a different king. There's a king who um, gets so distraught when his queen, when his wife dies, that he wants to preserve her body in oil so that he can look at it more. And um, he won't eat. He doesn't do his, his job being a king. And his chief minister takes him to a monk who talks to him in this way. And it's, it's, the, same, it's the same teaching as this, because this person really is, you know, like his, in, in the case of a king, you can really see they do have enemies. And they do have friends, and the enemies are going to be happy if the king they they hate is is you know not doing very well, and the friends are going to be sad. So you kind of get that sense. So this um, this next part is really the 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 upside, the noble disciple, the instructed noble disciple. And I would recommend every one of us think of ourselves as a noble disciple. Um, even though you may say, well, I, haven't, I don't have any attainments like, you know, stream entry or whatever. Don't think like that. Think about how you've stepped on this path and you're doing this practice and you're learning these things from the Buddha. And so this is what we want to consider when things happen. I'm not the only one for whom what is subject to old age grows old. For all beings that come and go, they pass away and undergo rebirth. What is subject to old age grows old. If I were to sorrow, languish, lament, be, weep, beating my breast and becoming confused, 
when what is subject to old age grows old, I would lose my appetite and my features would become ugly. I would not be able to do my work. My enemies would be elated. My friends would become saddened. Thus, when what is subject to old age grows old, the person doesn't go into such a deep um, sorrow, lamenting, and confusion. There's still whatever feeling we have coming up is okay. You know, we take care of it with kindness, not to feel bad about... Sometimes, you know, people can take a teaching like this and think, oh, well, I shouldn't be sad if someone passes away in my life or something. But that's not, that's not the reality. We have to be with what we experience, and it's fine. And to have compassion for others when they go through the same thing. However, we have this teaching we can come back to. It's like, okay. And I'm amazed sometimes people come with some of the most difficult situations, and they'll be really distraught. And they hear this kind of teaching, and it clears. You see their face clear. They, they, it's not like they can just like throw the grief out or throw away the, the fears or whatever, but there is something very fundamental there that helps to give us a basis to stand on. And so we see the repetition here for all the other four situations, illness, death, something significant to us being destroyed or something being lost. These, these, I'm going to just go down to where the verses start. These bhikkhus are the five situations that are unattainable by any ascetic or Brahmin, by a deva, mara, or brahma, or by anyone in the world. It's not by sorrowing and lamenting that even the least good here can be gained. Now this is a very important statement. It keeps us from clinging to grief and sadness keeps us from thinking. I, my mother had this. Her younger brother died, and she felt guilty if she caught herself not thinking about him and feeling bad. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is kind of the idea. We feel like we should, well, maybe I, don't, I didn't love him enough that, I, that I'm like going on with my life and not thinking about it. You know, of course, that's the Buddha is saying, this is not, this is not helping. <laughs> you know, being um, awash in um, these difficult emotions doesn't help. So we have to find that balance of allowing whatever arises to be there, turning towards it. So the Buddha lists these kinds of feelings as dukkha, they're dukkha. When we treat them like dukkha, care for them, observe them, let them go. And, and no matter how many times it arises, it doesn't matter. We still, you know, attend to them in the same way, with, that, with mindfulness, with wisdom and compassion. So it's like really taking that in. Nothing good comes from it. Now, sometimes people feel... Like there is a beauty in grief. And I really would invite that 
reflection to be what is what is it that's beautiful the beautiful part is reflecting on the goodness of the person who has passed away reflecting on all of the good qualities um, you know and and remembering those good things about them you know that isn't actually essential to grief we can do that without the sadness we can do that without the 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 down pulling um, mental states. Knowing that one is sorrowful and sad, one's enemies are related, elated. Sorry, when the wise person does not shake in adversities, knowing how to determine what is good, his enemies are saddened, having seen that his former facial expression does not change. So. When we really, you know, work with this teaching, something comes along and, you know, development, it's not just this teaching, of course, it's the whole of the Noble Eightfold Path. Our sila is developed, our meditation is developed, our wisdom is developed, and then when things happen, there isn't that, that being shaken to the core. And... You know, that is something that's really beautiful to see. Um, by that point, a person has become a real resource to others. And this is what we need in our world that's on fire. You know, all of us can gradually build up our own resilience and wisdom and our own development of the path. Um, so that the, the shakenness is, is reduced. Again, not feeling bad if we feel shaken. So it's just this kind of idea of like, okay, we're moving in the right direction. Whenever one might gain one's good, wherever one might gain one's good, in whatever way. So now what this means here is, you know, when we... When we have adversity, when any of these things are, are unfolding, we do what we can do. And here he says by chanting and mantras and maxims and gifts and tradition. And so what he's saying here is by the spiritual actions of, you know, we're sharing merit with people who are ill. I've seen some amazing results from that. There was a woman once who was... Um, diagnosed with cancer and she was going to undergo a surgery and I'm not going to be able to re recount all the details but um, her husband contacted us and we were happened to be at a Western Buddhist monastic gathering this is a, a all these mon monastics from Buddhist monastics from all traditions gathering together and we were um, gathering in Oh, City of the Dharma Realm, I think, in Sacramento. And this word came of her upcoming, really, uh, emergency surgery. And some of the monastics knew this couple, and so we shared merit with her. And then the report later of, like, super miraculous, like, unfolding of this this thing to it was amazing like the 
amazing kind of way the surgery went and the way the recovery went and the, you know, of course, there's no proof, right? But it's like there are times when what we do matters and it helps and there are ways to um, alleviate suffering and alleviate some of the the conditions. Uh, a Bayagiri Buddhist monastery was threatened by fire a few years ago. It came and went all the way all around them and it happened that um, the abbot was at, um, actually they were at the monastery in, in uh, New Hampshire. All the abbots uh, from the North American Thai forest tradition were gathered together for a meeting and they heard about the fire and they started to chant one of the chants to, and it actually has a line in it, it says, fire go back. And when they, you know, you, everybody evacuated, of course, and they didn't know what was happening to the monastery. And the, the monastery, they had just built a new temple building, and it was just like, would be such a shame to lose all of that. And then when the monks actually could go back to the monastery, the, some of the firemen were still there. And the firemen said that they were all, they were assembled to fight this fire that was coming down the mountain. And they were standing there watching it come. And all of a sudden it turned and went back up the mountain. And they said their hair stood on end. They couldn't believe it. They said they never saw anything like it in their whole life. No buildings were touched. You could see some pictures of the burn area coming right up to Kutis and then stopping. You know, and it's like, okay, occasionally something like this can happen based on chanting mantras, whatever, whatever we might do. Medicines, okay, whatever we, we do what we can. <clears throat> One should exert oneself in that way. Do what you can, but if one should understand this good result can't be obtained by me or anyone else, because the karma is sometimes the fire is going to come through anyway, and the monastery burns. And Ajahn Brahm said that uh, many years ago a wildfire was coming through the Bodhinyana monastery, and they had to evacuate and they're seeing the flames and no telling what what would happen to it all and Ajahn Brahm's attitude was it's okay another monastery burns it's not a problem we come back and we start building again and and people were amazed it's like how can you have that attitude it's like because this is the way things are you know sometimes that's how it happens as it turns out their buildings didn't burn either, in that case. One kuti burned, and he said, that was a monk who was naughty. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> it is important to uh, keep our sila. But the point is, we should understand that sometimes it's going to go that way because we can't keep these five things from happening. One should accept the situation without sorrowing, thinking, the karma is strong. What can I do now? So it's like, if, if the time to die is upon us, 
or to be ill or something has gotten lost or destroyed, then we can always ask, so what do I do now? What can I do? There's always something we can do. You know, share goodness in our mind even, whatever it is. So this is, this is really, I find this so encouraging. It's like, it's a little teaching on how do we manage these inevitable, unavoidable situations. So before I go on, would anyone like to say anything about this particular sutta or have any questions? Yes, Anne? So, um, give it to me. It's just so powerful for me. I can hardly stand it. I mean, it's just so pertinent. Um, rules on it. Um, Bhikkhu Bodhi actually gave me permission to. Um, copy anything. He, uh, he has expressly given the permission to copy anything, but I want you to be able to get at these things later. So, so sister, this can one. You one more time repeat what the sutta is because I just turned that on. The okay, recording. it's um, Angutra Nikaya 9.5 and it's called Powers. And so here we have um, these, are, there are these four powers. What four? The power of wisdom, energy, blamelessness, and inclusiveness. And I prefer Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation here, which is the power to sustain favorable relationships. So I'm going to talk about it in those terms. And this is a very interesting sutta because it's like I didn't see that this collection of qualities together before I had read this. It was years ago now, but... I think it's a very, very important sutta. It gives us some insight into this, you know, like that question at the end of the previous sutta, what can I do now? This is a, this is a recipe. This will help us know exactly what we can do now. <laughs> and what is the power of wisdom? One has clearly seen and clearly contemplated with wisdom those qualities that are skillful and considered to be skillful, those that are unskillful, etc., un and considered to be unskillful, blameworthy or blameless, dark or bright, to be cultivated and not to be cultivated, the ones that are worthy of the noble ones and the ones that are not worthy of the noble ones. In fact, the last part, it says, worthy of the noble ones and considered to be worthy of the noble ones. This is the power of wisdom. So you get the scent. This is what we talk about, about wholesome and unwholesome. So all of these ways that the Buddha is, you know, like trying to point to really understanding what should we be doing and what should we not be doing? What should we be thinking and not thinking? How do we purify our actions and our mind? So then that's the first power is knowing, knowing what is wholesome and unwholesome, etc. The second power is the power of energy. This is when one generates enthusiasm, tries, makes an effort, exerts the mind, and strives to give up those qualities that are unskillful and considered to be unskillful, those that are blameworthy, 
dark, not to be cultivated, not worthy of the noble ones, and considered to be not worthy of the noble ones. And one generates enthusiasm, tries, makes an effort, exerts the mind, and strives to gain those qualities that are skillful and considered to be skillful, those that are blameless, bright, to be cultivated, worthy of the noble ones, and considered to be worthy of the noble ones. This is called the power of energy. And just to pay, just to pay attention to the way the Buddha puts all of this, like it's worthy of you to do it this way, not the other way. And it's considered to be skillful, blameless, bright, to be cultivated. So this is also understood by wise people in the world. It's not just the Buddha saying, this is how it is. It's like, this is what we experience directly ourselves. And when people cultivate, we come to know this for ourselves. We know that it's better not to lie. We know that it's better not to have disparaging thoughts about ourselves, putting ourselves down. We know that it's better to not take drugs and alcohol. You learn these things ourselves and the wise understand these things to be the case. And we're putting in the energy for that. So all the other things, this is what the Buddha says about right effort everywhere. This is about purifying the mind. Purifying the mind and the basis for purifying everything that we say and everything that we do. And it's, it's not about you know, 16 hours on the cushion. It's not about walking until your feet bleed. It's about really purifying, you know, doing what's skillful and avoiding what's unskillful. Okay, those are the first two. Then we've got the power of blamelessness. It's when a noble disciple has blameless conduct by way of body, speech, and mind. So this is virtue, really purified virtue that goes really deep. It goes into the way we think. It goes into the way we speak, the way we act. And we can really know we're not at fault. That doesn't mean we don't make mistakes, but that's not the same thing. This is, this is blamelessness in that we're not taking actions that are inappropriate. So this is, this is like, you know, there's no way any one of us avoids being blamed. But if we're blamed and we, we are keeping good sila, then we know that it's not, it, there's no basis for it. If you make a mistake, you admit it. You try to rectify it right away. That still leaves you blameless. Okay, so that's the third one. The fourth one which I will say is, what is the power of sustaining favorable relationships? There are four ways of sustaining favorable relationships. Giving, kind words, taking care of someone, and this says equality. Um, in, impartiality is a better translation, I think. So... This, this paragraph talks about the best of gifts is the gift of teaching the Dhamma. It's a gift of Dhamma, not just any teaching. The best sort of kindly speech is to teach the Dhamma again and again to someone who's engaged and who let, act, 
actively listens. The best way to take care is to encourage, settle, and ground the unfaithful in faith, the unethical in ethics, the stingy in generosity, and the ignorant in wisdom. The best kind of equality, again, this I'm going to go into this more deeply, this way of uh, treating people impartially, but this is called, talking about the equality between levels of development on the path. This is called the power of inclusiveness, sustaining favorable relationships. I'm going to go into this one more in a minute with another sutta, the next sutta, because this, this has one angle on it, the angle of sharing the Dhamma. But this quality, this uh, power of impartiality has many aspects to it in the way that we live our life, in the way that we engage and develop our relationships. And when we develop relationships in this way where if someone can benefit from a gift, we give them a gift. If someone can benefit from encouraging kind words, we give those encouraging kind words. If someone can benefit from our doing a favor for them, helping them out in some way, we do that. If someone can benefit from being treated impartially, and I really, I'm, I'm really learning how important that impartiality is. You're managing a team and you're treating people the same way. You know, you're, you're um, <laughs> having a Buddhist event and you're treating the, the male and the female mendicants in the same way. <laughs> you're, you're having a, 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 a meeting about how to work with something in your community and everyone in the community holds an equal stake. This is really a very powerful power. Okay, so I'm going to go on here and we'll go to the next sutta to talk more about that. I don't think that's going to work because it's already is 816, that... yeah. Oh no, it'll work. A noble disciple who has these four powers has got past five fears. So if you have these four powers, you never have to, again, be afraid of losing your livelihood. You never have to be afraid, again, of getting a bad reputation. You never have to be afraid, again, of feeling insecure in a group of people, in, a, in an assembly, or, or timid, or fearful of anything. You never have to be, again, afraid of death. You never have to be, again, afraid of what might happen after death. And then it says... Then the noble disciple reflects on that. So again, Buddha, the Buddha has us turning towards realizing this has happened to me. I don't have a fear regarding my livelihood. Why would I be afraid of that? I have these four powers. <laughs> the power of wisdom, energy, blamelessness, and, and sustaining favorable relationships. A person who doesn't have these powers, who's not wise, might fear losing their livelihood, etc. A lazy person might fear that. A person who is blameworthy because of the things they've done by body, speech, and mind might fear losing their livelihood. A person who doesn't include others, doesn't develop favorable relationships might have that fear. But I don't have to have that fear. And the same for all of the other fears. Getting a bad reputation, being insecure in a group, <clears throat> having the fear of death or what happens after death. 
So these are the five fears. Now let's go on to the next one. I want to show you how this plays out with one of the Buddha's disciples, Hataka. So Hataka was someone that the Buddha praised, and you'll see this in this sutta. This sutta is also in the Anguttara Nikaya. It's in the Book of Eights, number 24. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Alavi in the Agalava Shrine. Then Hataka of Alavi, accompanied by 500 lay followers, approached the Blessed One. Now, Hataka was also a layman, <coughs> and he had 500 friends with him. That's a lot of friends. <laughs> And he pays homage to the Buddha, and he sits down to one side, and the Buddha says to him, Wow, you have a lot of friends. <laughs> Your retinue is large, Hataka. How do you sustain this large retinue? And he says, I do so, Bhante, by the four means of sustaining a favorable relationship. This is Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation. Taught by the Blessed One. When I know this one is going to be sustained by a gift, I sustain him by a gift. And when I know this one would be sustained by endearing speech or kind speech, I sustain them by endearing speech. And when I know this one would be sustained by beneficent conduct or a favor that I can do for them, I, make, I do the favor for them. I help them out. When I know this one would be sustained by impartiality, I sustain them with impartiality. And my family has money and they they listen to me a little bit better because of that. I'm glad he admits this. <laughs> um, and the Buddha says, good, good, Hataka. This is the method by which you can sustain a large following, a large group of friends, retinue. For all those in the past who sustained a large group of followers, they did this by these same four means of sustaining a favorable relationship. All those in the future who will sustain a large group of people, friends, will do so by these same four means of sustaining a favorable, favorable relationship. And all those at present, the same thing. This is how it's done. Then after the Blessed One had instructed and encouraged and inspired and gladdened Hataka of Alavi with the Dhamma talk, and of course he was encouraging, inspiring, and gladdening all of his 500 friends, Hataka rose from his seat, paid homage to the Blessed One, circumambulated him, keeping him on his right side, and departed. Then not long after Hataka of Alavi had left, the Blessed One addressed the monks, and he said, You should remember Hataka of Alavi as one who possesses eight astounding and amazing qualities. What eight? He is endowed with faith. He is virtuous. He has a sense of moral shame and moral dread. Now, that translation I don't appreciate. This is Hiri and Otapa. And Bhikkhu Bodhi and I have discussed this. This is the way it's been translated. It, he hasn't updated this, but the idea that this is your conscience and this is your prudence. Your conscience, you know, knowing that you're doing what's wholesome or unwholesome. Your prudence in how you go forward. He's learned, he's generous, and he's wise. He has few desires. I mean, even though he's a rich guy, he's few desires. These are his qualities, this beautiful person. 
you should remember him as one possessing these eight astounding and amazing qualities. Now we're going to go on to the next sutta. This is what happens after Hataka dies. Great that you can get it done. Oh, yeah. yeah. You had doubts. I had. <laughs> well, I understand. Okay, this, this one is from the Anguttara Nikaya also, the Book of Threes, number 127, Hataka. Now, Hataka has passed away, and he has become a deva. At one time, the Buddha was staying near Savati and Jeta's Grove, Anatapindaka's monastery. Then late at night, the glorious Deva Hataka, lighting up the entire Jeta's Grove, went up to the Buddha thinking, I will stand before the Buddha. He sank and melted down and wasn't able to stay still. It's like when ghee or oil is poured on the sand. It sinks and melts down and can't remain stable. Do you have the picture? Like this... <laughs> heavenly being, and he just melts into the ground. And then the Buddha says, Hataka, manifest a solid life form. Manifest the body, Hataka. <laughs> yes, sir, he replies. He manifested a solid life form and bowed to the Buddha and stood to one side. And the Buddha said to him, Hataka, I wonder whether you still rehearse now the teachings that you rehearsed when you were a human being. Another way to translate this is, I wonder if you still remember the teachings, the Dhamma, that you had learned when you were a human being. And he said, oh yes, I still remember the teachings that I learned when I was a human being, and I also remember the teachings that I didn't remember when I was a human being. <laughs> Which is great. Just think of it. This is, this is where you could go, you know, where you could really remember the Dhamma, even the parts you forgot. <laughs> just as the Buddha these days, this is Hataka saying, just as, just as you live crowded by bhikkhus and bhikkhunis and laymen and laywomen and by rulers and ministers and monastics of other religions and their disciples, so I live crowded by the devas. The devas come from far away thinking, we'll hear the teaching in the presence of Hataka. <laughs> so I passed away without getting enough of three things. What three? Seeing the Buddha, hearing the true Dhamma, and serving the Sangha. I passed away without getting enough of these three things. I could never get enough of seeing the Buddha, serving the Sangha, and hearing the Dhamma training in the higher ethics, loving to hear the true Dhamma. Hataka has gone to the Aviha realm without getting enough of those three things. So that's our... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate